My name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going to get incredibly mixed up. We may even turn into a zombie because we're talking about Ray Dennis Steckler. Boy, I tell you, Justin, every once in a while on this podcast, we pick a subject that I get so excited for, just the idea of unleashing this subject on an unsuspecting listenership. The fact that we have a captive audience now who is forced to listen, well, they're not forced, but they force themselves now to listen to whatever we put out. Have we got a filmmaker for you? Ray Dennis Steckler, the director of such movies as Rat Fink a Boo Boo, Blood Shack, Wild Guitar, and of course, the incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed up zombies. But I would say that since we started this podcast, anytime I brought Steckler up, which is not a filmmaker that I was an expert on by any stretch of the imagination, you always reacted with a little bit of trepidation where you're like, yeah, we could do him, but it would probably be a bit of a slog, Justin. Yes, I did say that. And there have also been times when even I have thought, yeah, maybe we could do Ray Dennis Steckler. But I've always been sort of interested in Ray Dennis Steckler because he was fly by the seat of his pants, true independent spirit, making genuinely strange movies. And, you know, I have I had seen most of his films at some point before this week. But whenever I referred to him on this podcast in the past, I feel like I've always referred to him a little bit derisively as being like, oh, well, that's a guy who, you know. Yeah, he didn't know what he was doing. Any scrap of you usable footage he would uh, put in a movie. I mean, I even saw that in some of the early reviews you were writing on Letterboxd this week. And then by the end, you're like, yeah, four and a half stars. So good. <laughs> I know. I know. You, you could see that. I went on a Steckler deep dive this week. And, you know, like I watched uh, The Thrill Killers and I was like, well, this is, you know, probably about as close as he got to a good movie. It's still flawed. And now, almost a week later, I'm like, I love this man. I, I, It's been a while that I've just been so like energized by a filmmaker that we've done on this podcast. Well, I put his movies off this week because I'm like, it's going to be a bit of a rough go. And, you know, Will's like, well, I don't know about this. And then I sat down and I watched like three in one sitting. I'm like, oh, this, this is my kind of guy. I'm really digging this. Because this is the guy where I think so many of our interests converge. It's like he was influenced by Godard. He was influenced by Antonioni. But he made movies where superheroes fight guys in gorilla suits. Uh, he never had a budget higher than $38,000. He made movies that were improvised, movies that halfway through what started as a thriller would turn into a superhero spoof. He made movies that are stream of consciousness, that whatever kind of feeling that he has, or more specifically, whatever resources are available to him will define the movie that he makes. And they are oftentimes completely inspired by the crap that he liked when he was a kid. And I think most importantly, too, is that the films, not only are they low budget, but they are community and family affairs. And you can definitely feel that in his first bunch of movies, like the Lemon Grove Kids, which is named that because Lemon Grove was the name of the street where he lived with his family who appear in the movie. A little bit of background on Ray Dennis Steckler. He grew up in Reading, Pennsylvania. Like so many filmmakers, he had an eight millimeter camera as a kid, made little movies. As an adult, he was never someone 
well, actually, that's not true. I was going to say he was never someone who supported himself on his filmmaking. But in the 70s and 80s, he did support himself on a certain kind of filmmaking, which I think we'll get to. But he kind of did because he was a whatever job came up, I'll do it. Like, you know, he had those go to stories in his interviews where he worked on a set where he almost like ran right into Alfred Hitchcock, which got him fired. He was one of the cameramen on Ega as well. He stumbled into his first job as a director making a movie for the star of Ega, who was Arch Hall Jr. Arch Hall Jr. we talked a little bit about on our Vilmos Zygmunt episode. He was this young pop singer kid uh, who didn't really want to be a star, but his father, Arch Hall Sr., was convinced this kid is going to be a star. So he built a whole like distribution chain built a whole company just to make Archall Jr. movies. And one of those movies was a movie called Wild Guitar, which was Steckler's feature debut. And it was the only Steckler joint to have a complete script that was not deviated from. I watched an interview with Steckler on the Incredibly Strange Film Show from the 80s, and he said that that was an experience that was productive for him because he realized he didn't like working with a script. First of all, if you're working with a script shoot whatever you're feeling that day i mean we talk about this a lot in terms of people like jess franco or even andy milligan is that they just need to keep making movies no matter what's around them and that is you know a very french new wave ethos which ray dennis steckler was very aware of and inspired by like just get out there make a movie you don't have to be kind of buckled down by anything else and all that's important is the kind of stuff that you put on screen. You know, Wild Guitar, while his most conventional film, and not really his, I think that he comes full on out in his second feature directorial effort, The Incredibly Strange Creatures Who Stopped Living and Became Mixed Up Zombies, which I think is the one that people always watch first because of the wild title. And I know it's the one that I saw, and I was like, eh, yeah, not much happens in this movie. And you might have seen it because it was on Mystery Science Theater 3000. Oh, it was? Yes, it was. And uh, the guys were not kind to the movie. I know Ray Dennis Steckler in his later days said, oh, I thought that was disgusting. Those guys have no understanding of what it takes to make an independent film, which is a totally fair point of view. I mean, if, if a robot silhouette said that I looked like Nosferatu, I would probably be a little offended by that. I mean, but we're here to say that the film is mostly made up of watching circus performances. Okay, so The Incredibly Strange Creatures was marketed as the first monster musical and that sounds pretty exciting doesn't it but the musical numbers and god knows how many of them there are there could be six there could be 50 i lost count they are all seemingly at like an open mic review show there was music because steckler had access to a bunch of like las vegas showgirl costumes and if you look at the dance numbers you know they are very poorly choreographed <laughs> not a lot of synchronization in the dancing and then the rest of the movie is mostly steckler and other actors just walking around the fair <laughs> looking at stuff yeah and this introduces a motif that will recur throughout the steckler filmography which is Got to get to 70 minutes, so get that camera and just start grinding it. Do you like shots of roller coasters? Do you like shots of the midway? Do you like shots on roller coasters? I was going to say, because you're on it. Like, you know, that's good filmmaking. You see the roller coaster, you get closer to it, someone's walking to it, then you're on the roller coaster. Listen, we got to get to those 70 minutes. The amount of actually cool, funny stuff in it is relatively low, but 
overall, I did have some affection for this one. This is not one of my favorite Steckler movies, but some of the funny stuff in it, I think, is pretty charming because Steckler stars in it under the pseudonym Cash Flag. Oh, what a great pseudonym. I mean, Steckler is the king of pseudonyms. He plays just like a normal guy who goes into a fortune teller's lair and she hypnotizes him. And uh, if ever he sees like a a twirling, uh, what do you call that thing? Like a spiral? Yeah, like a twirling spiral, you know, like you see when you're hypnotized. Yeah, happens all the time to me. I'm like, no! It causes him to go in a murderous rage, and he puts on a hoodie, and he's got big um, googly eyes, and he just kills anyone who's in front of him. Yeah, that stuff is good. Not enough of it. Just like another movie where Steckler also wears uh, a crazy costume and murders people that we'll get to a little bit later. I mean, this is the one that I would tell people, if they want to get into Ray Dennis Steckler, skip this one. Come to it later, because we're going to talk about some other ones that are much, much more fun than this. This is like Steckler, you know, he just wants to make a movie that's his own, and he was able to do it with the Incredibly Strange Creatures, and then he could move on to something that's, I think, more of his stamp and personality, Well, uh, the Thrill Killers from 1964. Okay, now this movie, this is the one that, watching it this week, really started to shift my perception of Steckler, because for a long time, I think my line on Steckler was... He kind of had this cult popularity in the 80s. He was one of those filmmakers who people talked about, like John Waters and Russ Meyer. You know, he was on the Jonathan Ross show, the Incredibly Strange Film Show. And I I always attributed that to, you know, people just hadn't seen a lot of cult movies at the time. And you think as well that it was a like, so bad it's good kind of thing, right? Yeah, definitely. And also it was the title, The Incredibly Strange Creatures Who Stopped Living and Became Mixed Up Zombies. And that, that was frankly the one that for years dominated my perception god of him. damn you mystery sign cedar 3000 exactly yes but the thrill killers i think actually works as a thriller mm-hmm. i mean it is a very all over the place thriller but i think that its aesthetics are uh right up my alley and the giant swings that it takes i very much appreciate it there are a lot of individual scenes that are really great the plot generally like it goes all over the place because again he didn't really have a script but there's a uh, movie star well uh, an aspiring movie star somebody who's which i need to point out is played by joseph bardo who's the namesake of albert pion's favorite uh name brick bardo because joseph bardo was albert pion's uh mentor when pion came to hollywood and he actually produced pion's film vicious lips Ooh, it's all connected isn't it it is but his wife is played by liz renee who people may know from the john waters film desperate living And midway through the movie, they stumble onto this proto-Manson gang. Last House on the Left-ish. Yeah, yeah, very much like that. And they go into this, like, abandoned house, and they go into the attic, and they find just, like, a severed head in the attic. And there's the gang that's there and they're like, oh man, you know, let's fuck with these people. That whole sequence is so powerful. And while I was watching it, I was like, this makes me think of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It it really works. And Herb Robbins from the Worm Eaters is like the leader of the gang and he's quite good. Oh, and we should point out Herb Robbins who, uh, according to Ray Dennis Steckler, had gotten in a fight. So he has a real busted up face and one of his eyes is like twitching the entire time. And it's because he was injured and he came to Steckler crying, being like, listen, I can't be in the movie. You know, my face is all busted up. And Steckler's like, no, 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 this is better. We can use this. You'll look even wilder in the film. And he does, he gets big old close-ups of that busted up eye. Oh, fuck. Stories like that just make me so excited about art. It's like, here's this guy, Ray Dennis Steckler. Doesn't matter what happens. He'll incorporate 
incorporated into the movie and it'll be great. Well, he said Herb Robbins had never been in a movie before. He was like an improv actor. And so there is like an intensity to it in this scene. And I think the other guy is the guy that was based on uh, Cliff Booth from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, right? That's right. Gary Kent, the inspiration for that character. And there's another great scene early on where Cash Flag, Ray Dennis Steckler, is in a motel room with a prostitute and he stabs her and the stabbing is done in this you know intriguing synchronization with the flickering light from outside the window like th these movies are full of unexpected moments of visual poetry and like her screams go out of sync as well as she's being stabbed which i feel like was probably an accident but it feels almost like Godardian in the way that it's presented, especially how long it goes as well. Yeah, it's an imperfect film. I think it drags a little bit towards the end where there's this very long, drawn out chase. Well, suddenly you're like, wait a minute, who is the principal character? I guess it's Ray Dennis Steckler, serial killer who has jumped on a horse and is now having a cowboy chase scene. But, you know, it's still like a movie that's full of life, full of ideas, full of great scenes. And that can apply doubly to an amazing comedy that he made called The Lemon Grove Kids Meet the Monsters, which is actually a collection of three short films. Now, is this a movie that you think that people could enjoy if they're going to discover Ray Dennis Steckler because it is so inspired by the Bowery Boys, a comedic subgenre that ha that history has completely forgotten. I don't know if anybody would enjoy this movie, but I know that I enjoyed it a lot. And as I was watching it, I DM'd you and I said, okay, you have to watch this movie because like this movie is made for us. I was definitely going to watch <laughs> okay. it. It's called The Lemon Grove Kids Meet the Monsters. Like this movie is just full of movie love. It is full of like the cultural detritus of the previous 30 years of filmmaking it is just a straight up like bowery boys fan film with uh, ray dennis steckler playing the hunts hall role and his friends and family which includes his wife carolyn brandt who appears in almost all of his films even when she was his ex-wife later on and it seems like they're just having such a ball like doing all this bowery boys shtick in their back and front yard like herb robbins shows up again uh, playing a gangster in an alley. It looks like so much fun to make. You know, it's not just uh, wacky comedy shenanigans, although there's a lot of that. There are a lot of pratfalls, a lot of silent comedy silliness, a lot of mugging. There's also a vampire lady. There are uh, space people. There are people with really kooky, like Kenneth Anger makeup, weird lighting effects. And most importantly, there's a gorilla <laughs> played by the great gorilla actor of Hollywood, Bob Burns. Yeah, I mean, this movie, it's just a delight from beginning to end. And I want to live inside this movie. It feels like one of the Matt Farley, Charles Roxburg Motern movies, where it's just this community effort where everyone's having a great time, having a party. Oh, it looks so good, too. My kingdom for a Blu-ray transfer of this movie. Just so colorful. Oh, yeah. It's worth noting that on a lot of his early movies, not this one, but on a lot of them, Steckler worked with some cinematographers that you may, may have heard of named Vilmos Zygmunt and Laszlo Kovacs. That's right. I think they worked together on incredible strange creatures right that was like their main collaboration there's a story that steckler told in like all of his interviews where he first worked with vilmo sigmund on wild guitar and the best scene in wild guitar is this like 
love scene between Archal Jr. and the leading lady on an indoor skating rink, which is lit by this one spotlight. It's quite beautiful. Steckler always claimed that, oh yeah, I really had to talk Vilmo Zygmunt into that. He didn't he didn't like that idea. And now, uh, I don't know if you've seen a little movie called Close Encounters of the Third Kind, but it has a lot of shots like that. You know, I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe did I, did I introduce him? You know what? I'll give that to Ray Dennis. Like, what else has he got? I, you know, I think it's great. I think it's great. Uh, and now we can move to probably, I would say, uh, Steckler's second most famous film, Rat Fink a Boo Boo. Yeah, this one is also, I think, primarily most famous for its title. The popular legend, much perpetuated by Steckler himself, is that the title was actually supposed to be Rat Fink and Boo Boo, but the person who designed the titles made a mistake, had it called Rat Fink a Boo Boo, and Steckler did not have any money left after spending a whopping $8,000 on the film to fix that error. And Steckler in interviews has said, ah, nah, it's just a kid. You know, she said the title like that. So I decided to call it Ratfinger Boo Boo instead. But people like the other story, so, you know, print the legend. <laughs> and then when I told this to Will, he's like, yeah, as if it's a legend. And I'm like, Will, we talk about it like it is. Well, it's a legend to me and Justin and probably several dozen other people. So I guess, uh, I guess it qualifies. I do love that story and I'm sad it's not and true. And this movie is kind of a mixture of all of the Steckler stuff that he had made before. The beginning is a very stream of consciousness kind of thriller. What was the original title? It was like The Debased or something like that. Yeah, it was called The Depraved. And it begins as this sort of serious suspense movie with Carolyn Brandt as a woman who keeps getting obscene phone calls. She's being targeted and harassed by this gang. However, even the first half of the movie is a little bit all over the place because she also has a rock star boyfriend played by Steckler regular Ronnie Haydock. <laughs> like a 70-year-old man playing a teen heartthrob. That's part of the charm. That's the the like Moturn-style charm of these movies. But there are all these musical numbers in the first half. There's just like basically home movie footage of Ronnie Haydock and Carolyn Brandt, like, dancing and running around. It's like a Richard Lester movie. Yeah, you know, just absolutely delightful. And that contrasts very strangely with the serious sex thriller thing that's going on. But Steckler realized that <laughs> halfway through the movie. Yeah, Steckler realized that he had a bit of a turkey on his hands. Nobody was going to care about this movie. So, uh, you know, Batman is popular right now. Let's turn it into a superhero spoof. Yep. So the uh, main character and a side gardener character who hasn't done that much jump into a closet, literally, and pop out as Rat Fink a Boo Boo. And suddenly we're in what's up pussycat territory because they have a lot of dubbed uh, comedy lines throughout. Like, remember, Boo Boo, we only have one weakness bullets so the second half of this movie is devoted very largely to long long shots of rat fink and boo boo riding through hollywood on a motorcycle and a sidecar eventually they get to a park where they fight the villains and they also fight you guessed it a guy in a gorilla suit <laughs> bob burns again from there they crash a parade oh that parade is so good because you know that ray dennis steckler just drove his car onto the parade road and just like followed along and people were like what the heck is this and then and finally, it ends with a delightful dance number on the beach. The whole cast is there dancing, frolicking. Including the gorilla. Yes, the gorilla is there too. And you know, the movie would probably fit the rubric of being a well-made movie more if it had just stuck with that boring thriller plot that it started with. But nobody would like that movie. Nobody would remember or talk about that movie. What Steckler did instead was create a movie that is just like pure movie love, just the joy of filmmaking, the joy of being like, 
we can do whatever we want with this film that we have. Yeah, like in interviews, Steckler talks about that. What's important to him is that he has a camera, he can jump on a, in a car, go with friends, and just make a movie. And in all of the pictures that we've talked about, you can feel that through every single frame that passes in front of your eyes. And it's a good thing that Steckler then retired from the business and, you know, he never made another movie. Uh-oh, <laughs> that's not true. Oh, he made a lot of other movies. Yep. Steckler's golden period ends with a movie from 1969 called Body Fever, which I watched again this week and is quite interesting. It's like his inherent vice. Yeah, he wanted to make a noir pretty much is the way that he explains it. And I think he said that he cast a guy and then the guy fell out out so he had to take the main role and he's like oh god i am not good in this but he's like gotta finish it anyway and yeah it has a lot of flaws but it's kind of a beautiful like weirdly dreamy skid row mood piece i like it quite a bit actually we will return to the word skid row as we continue talking about this but in the 70s i guess ray decided to become a really professional filmmaker Uh, oh i should just mention that he also made a softcore movie called cynthia the devil's doll yeah his kenneth anger picture yeah i recommend that one it's really weird and interesting it has a lot of great kind of cool visual stuff and that is the last ray dennis steckler movie i'd recommend because he supported himself throughout the 70s and 80s making porn and bad porn not good hey you skipped right over probably i would say the third most famous steckler film blood shack aka the chooper yeah that was one that was made in the midst of this very porny decade it's also his first film with carolyn brandt after their divorce and it has a certain melancholy air about it very antonioni-esque <laughs> yeah that's a that's a charitable way to put it it's in the desert and it's mostly characters walking from one location to the next and i I would like to make a correction that uh, we joked that the distributor forced Steckler to add more stuff into the movie. That is a lie. I believe the distributor cut out all of his rodeo footage and the director's cut of the film is actually the 70 minute version. Okay. And folks, you do not want to watch the 70 minute cut of this film. No. Okay. The plot of the movie is Carolyn Brandt plays actress Carolyn Brandt, who after a successful career as a Hollywood actress retires to the desert to live in a shack, I guess. But unfortunately, the shack is haunted by a creature called the Chooper. And what is the Chooper? The Chooper is, I believe it's Ray Dennis Steckler, right? A Ray works cheap. In a black skin tight uh, leotard with like a fencing sword. At some point, Carolyn Brandt decides, let's go to the rodeo. Like you spend a whole day at the rodeo. Oh my goodness. So much rodeo footage. This movie... I have a certain amount of affection for it because it's it's definitely a Ray Dennis Steckler movie. And it's nice to see Ray hit those uh, melancholic notes, um, but it's horrible. I mean, it's not watchable for regular humans. No, I think that it's kind of like going back home and visiting an old friend and you're like, oh, I still got some of that magic there, but... You know, we all grow old over time and it can't last forever. And in the midst of all of that porn, none of which I would recommend, the mad love life of a hot vampire or something, uh, that's probably the most famous one, I guess. Yeah, I think Vinegar Syndrome put it out. Yeah, and there's The Sexorcist as well, but there are also a lot of ones like Debbie Does Las Vegas, Teenage Massage Parlor. Uh, A number of years ago, I watched uh, Sex Rank and Plato's Retreat West Uh, I don't know why I watched both of them because they are basically the same movie. They are just like six or seven naked people roller skating and having sex in a place that is supposed to be Plato's Retreat West. Uh, Oh, tourism will lead you to strange places. Not good. But in the midst of all that, he made 
a movie that, according to him, was his best-selling film, which is The Hollywood Strangler meets The Skid Row Slasher from 1979. This is Ray Dennis Steckler's driller killer, essentially. Like, real down in the muck, just following a lonesome character as he goes around murdering women, but without any of that artistry of the driller killer. Unless you uh, consider... Uh, non-style of style, which it, it definitely the is. The Hollywood Strangler is played by an actor named Pierre Augustino, who I hated looking at. Oh, God, just his face. I'm sure you hated hearing his voice as well as he mumbles his way through voiceover over the entire 72-minute running time. Oh, God, that 72 minutes felt like a year. But there is also another character named the Skid Row Slasher played in her final film for her ex-husband by Carolyn Brandt, uh, who does not have the same joie de vie that she used to have in these movies i think so i think this is a movie that ray dennis worked on for like a long time before it finally got done which makes it such of a bummer that when it came out it was his biggest success because from the hollywood strangler meets the skid row slasher onwards he basically only made these like dour kind of like just ugh, gross slasher films that don't have any of the structure of a slasher picture but just more like driller killerish murder all the way through because you also saw the las vegas serial killer many years ago right? yeah so i mean when we're talking about why i was reluctant to do a ray dennis steckler episode a, a lot of it was that movie because the las vegas serial killer is as bad as a movie gets it is mostly just like ray and his camera going through las vegas uh, like like imagine the bad version of news from home and you have you know and it's set in las vegas you're kind of selling it to me well <laughs> yeah maybe i should take another look at it actually you're right now that you're on the steckler kick you're like oh it's fun to see 1986 las vegas yeah i mean it's it doesn't have the fun of his early movies i don't know what took the life out of steckler whether it was you know the... what i would say he moved away from hollywood he moved away from his friends his family he was kind of left on his own and this is the only kind of stuff that he could find the energy to do yeah and plus a lot of porn and i think that weighed on him yeah i think it definitely weighed on him is that when you do porn uh, day in and day out he probably did like one day quickies i bet that it's like uh how do you make a good movie again i don't remember i watched uh one of his pornos this week actually called deviates in love which is i was disappointed to find was just a loop carrier basically he took like six or seven disconnected loops and kind of stuck them together with narration and it's you know, there's just nothing there. I'm fascinated how a uh, filmmaker like Ray Dennis Steckler ends up in Las Vegas, because you know who else ended up in Las Vegas? Albert Pune. <laughs> the circle is closed. As did Jerry Lewis. All the great artists end up there. And I think near the end of his life, like he, uh, some say he ran a movie theater. Other pe people said he ran like a video store. But he did get to, you know, have his time under the sun when a company like Media Blasters like put out all of his movies on DVD and he got to do commentaries for all of them. He did run a video store. And in fact, you can see that video store in his very last movie called One More Time, which is a sequel to The Incredibly Strange Creatures. And this is one that I would only really recommend to Steckler Complete Us because it's basically just a home movie. It's shot on like a shitty video camera. But what's weird about it is it takes like a meta turn. He spends the first half of the movie as his character from the first movie, you know, a lot of time spent of him riding the bus and going to that same like fairground. Wow, it's his Max Rose. But the second half, he wakes up and he's Ray Dennis Steckler and nobody will finance his new movie. 
But the employees at the video store are like, you know, Ray, uh, you, you make movies. You, you you'll make this movie. You'll you'll use whatever resources you have. Oh, man, you're selling this to me. Will. It's on YouTube if you want to watch it. Um, I recommend it to you, Justin. I think you will find yeah, something. So- sounds like it's got real Luc Moulet vibes. <laughs> Pretty generous, but I do think you should watch it. I think you'll find something of value. Okay, well, I hope that the people who have never heard of Ray Dennis Deckler or only knew him from Incredibly Strange Creatures are finally going to go out and check more of his movies. He's great. Rat Finkaboo. Lemon Grove Kids, Thrill Killers. Start with those and you'll be a fan for life. All right. So as per usual, you can send us letters on Porn Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Scott Morris. And it goes, hello, Will and Justin. Been listening to your podcast for the past year and have come up with 100 questions I always forget to ask. So I'll just ask the ones that pop into my head at this moment. (laughs) Oh, God, 100 questions. No, he only has three. Do you guys have any recommendations for film history books? I want to have a solid outline on the tome I bought years ago, David Shipman's The Story of Cinema, is much too dense and full of his terrible opinions, which always get in the way of having a real understanding. He calls Douglas Sirk shrink-wrapped, Ken Russell incompetent, and... And Passion of Joan of Arc, pretentious drivel to provide a sample. I don't know. I like somebody with a little attitude when it comes to film history. I guess. Although, God, those are some strange judgments. Those are terrible opinions. I need something more streamlined and entry level and good. I mean, the easiest one to recommend will be Mark Cousins, The Story of Film. Yeah. And there's also the David Boardwell, Kristen Thompson film history textbook. Oh, so dry, though. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's the standard for all academic film courses. It's hard for me to think of like a book that encompasses all of film history exactly that I love. But there are certain books that give you an outline of like big periods of film history or give a broad overview of like, you know, particular movements that are worth studying. Like The Parades Gone By by Kevin Brownlow is the best book about the silent era. There's Peter Bogdanovich's book, Who the Devil Made It, which is all of his interviews and anecdotes about the great Hollywood film directors of the Golden Age. And the big popular ones like Easy Rider Raging Bulls, of course, which is the one that, you know, everybody goes to because it's so salacious. And you're like, are these stories true? Well, you don't really know, but maybe they are. And then, you know, I I think that me and Will, when we look for history stuff, we look, like he said, more particular subjects like something along the lines of like King of the Bees, which is an amazing book that's packed with interviews and histories of like forgotten kind of like Poverty Row people or filmmakers that worked on the fringes of Hollywood. Yeah. And I might also just throw in a recommendation for like The American Cinema by Andrew Saras, just because it's a great Bible for who the great... Hollywood auteurs of the Golden Age were. Lots of bad opinions in there too, but that's good because you can form your own when you read his. And speaking of Andrew Saris, avoid all of the like film history books he wrote because once you get to a certain age as a film critic, you are forced to constantly churn out like this is the history of film and him and like people like david thompson have written like 30 of them that you'll find haunting bookstores everywhere well david thompson i think is just terrible all those fucking gassy books that he would write like what were those books called oh it's like the silver screen or something like that yeah Yeah. or that fucking biographical dictionary of film which is the most overrated volume ever written (laughs) i don't know about that but okay you, you don't like it yeah you know, f- fuck that guy with his purple prose. That's what I say. Oh, I like, you know, I don't like David Thompson very much. <laughs> like, But it's good to read and be like, this is bad. Yeah. Well, actually, you know what? I say that 
by all means, check out David Thompson because you might like him. I mean, he's good to compare and go, oh, this is what bad film writing is like. (laughs) Okay, this is a good example. The letter writer also asks, have either of you seen the ALF episode where ALF imagines himself as a little tramp and does Charlie Chaplin bits? I dearly want to hear your take on it. I have never seen an episode of ALF. I have not ever seen an ALF episode either, and I've not seen that one. Although perhaps it introduced a new generation to the magic of silent cinema. (laughs) Who knows? Um, And also, so, would you consider an episode on late style? Oh, I love that idea. I mean, the first thing that we think is like, oh, Clint Eastwood. Hey, uh, if you want to do the 1517 to Paris, you know I'm Again? down. Again? <laughs> There's only so much to say about it. Did you do an episode of Michael and us on no, it? No, we, we haven't, although we, we should. I know. I'm, sh- I'm shocked that you haven't. And our next letter is from Robert McDonald. And he goes, your Rolling Stone episode got me thinking about a better, more fun and interesting show topic. Ouch. Didn't you like <laughs> that episode? I thought it was good. <laughs> Yeah, I thought it was good, too. We worked hard on it. I had a great time watching those movies. And I don't know. he asked, Whatever. could you do an episode on, uh, you know, Madonna? Uh, like, Truth or Dare? Who's that girl? Spice Girl? Spice World? Hang on. Explain to me how that's a more interesting topic than the Rolling Stones. I don't I don't buy the premise. And then Michael Jackson? Ooh, we are not touching that. It was a dead football. Yeah, no thanks. What about Bob Dylan, though? How about that? Does he mention Just him? Just pop star. So Mariah Carey, Whitney Houston, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera. I mean, I don't think Justin and I really grew up with those people i mean we didn't grow up with the rolling stones either exactly so it would be harder for us to speak uh with authority on the appeal of like britney spears no disrespect to her by the way i mean that music was around but yeah it's not something that i had much of a passion for and i've all those movies like mariah carey's movies britney spears movie i just didn't see it so they have a strong whiff of like so bad they're good about them and i'm not sure i want to dig up glitter just to bury it uh, our next letter is from james waters and it goes dear justin and will i'd like you to read something will wrote recently <laughs> you really have to hand it to kevin smith some people still watch his 90s movies people still come out in droves to see him speak how many people are still quoting the films of hal hartley edward burns eric schaefer i usually don't fall for will's trolling I would recommend that. But this got me, despite myself. Wait, hang on. That's not trolling. That's accurate. Tell me where I'm wrong. Uh, The letter continues. The latter two names I could care less about and are likely worthless as filmmakers. Ouch. (laughs) But I've been... I was wondering if this was Mr. Eric Schaefer himself who was writing. (laughs) Oh, but could it be another filmmaker? But but I am Hal Hartley. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, shit. (laughs) But I've uh, been rewatching Hal Hartley's films recently and I've found his work holds up beautifully. So to a tone for Will's sinful remark above, I request you devote an episode to him, or at least a tenth of the amount of episodes time you devote to Kevin Smith. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. (laughs) A miserable little man whose work deserves no consideration or thought. This does feel like it's written by Hal Hartley. I actually have only ever seen one Hal Hartley movie, and I- You know what? I've seen two, and I liked them, but like- it didn't make me want to like really explore his work. And I saw like trust and the other famous one. That's one word. Yeah. I I saw the other one, the title of which I'm forgetting. And what's funny about this is that Kevin Smith was a huge Hal Hartley fan before he made, made clerks. There's a story that uh, the only autograph that he ever really went to go and get was from Hal Hartley at a screening. And he said, Hal Hartley was so rude to him <laughs> that like, he's like, I'll never treat fans that well, way. Well, that's good of Kevin Smith that he treats his fans fans more nicely than that what i'll say is i wasn't necessarily passing judgment on the films of hal hartley more just to say that he's one of those 
90s much buzzed about Sundance types who I feel like doesn't get talked about very much anymore. Doesn't get thought well, about. He can't even get his movies funded. Remember when he did that crowdfunding uh, thing for the film that started, I think, Aubrey Plaza? Yeah, that's right. I like to say, this is not the first Hal Hartley letter that we've gotten. We've gotten them multiple times since we started this podcast. So there is a Hal Hartley contingent out there that are very passionate about his movies. One day, because we have to do all of uh, film history. So we'll get to Hal Hartley. I mean, I am convinced that there is popular demand for him. And I think maybe instead of Hal Hartley, I should have written the name of Todd Salons instead. Oh, you'd definitely get some angry <laughs> emails or messages after that. For- forget Todd Salons, uh, Neil mm, Lebute. Or you know what? Your good friend, Whit Stillman. People like Whit Stillman, I think. Yeah, they do. I mean, especially when you're picking fights about, with him about Daffy Duck being cool or not. I didn't pick that fight. I tweeted I tweeted about Donald Duck and Whit Stillman, legendary Donald Duck defender, picked a fight with me, which I did not reciprocate because <laughs> I, I have no beef with Whit Stillman and I'm not going to fall for his games. <laughs> The games of a bored rich man. Which is weird because Donald Duck is a real uh, blue collar man, right? You know, he has to take care of his nephews. He has a rich uncle that doesn't want to give him any money. No, that's the thing. He's a trust fund kid. He's from the famous uh, McDuck family. I mean, that's... No, but the uh, famously Uncle Scrooge does not want to give any money to Donald. And when Donald has worked for Uncle Scrooge, he has been paid like a pittance for the time that he spends working for Uncle Scrooge. Well, I'll tell you who the real blue collar person in that family is. It's Launchpad. You remember Launchpad? Um, yeah, DuckTales. And of course, there's Darkwing Duck. Oh, yeah, the superior because he's inspired by Batman. <laughs> yeah, I like him. Uh, but that's not the launch pad from DuckTales, Will. Don't get them confused. That's a completely different character. Wow, it's like how Wile E. Coyote was both Wile E. Coyote and the guy who antagonized Sam the that's Sheepdog. That's right, when they check in, the way that, you know, capitalism is broken, that they go to this job where they just beat each other up every day and can somehow just clock out at the end of it. Wow, just like my life. So what are we doing on this week's Patreon, Will? We are talking about Amy Heckerling's teen classic, Clueless. Yes, Clueless, a film that I only saw a couple years ago, but really, really liked and that Will watched recently. So I went, let's talk about Clueless. So you can hear us talk about it. I don't know what else to say. Come on, guys. Clueless. You know it. You love Mm -hmm. it. So check that out at patreon.com slash the important cinema club. And I should also point out that there's three new Gold Ninja video releases that are up for pre-order. They're shipping in uh, uh, probably... Uh, less than a week by the time you hear this, we have a peplum film, which is Sword and Sandal in Italy, The Fury of Achilles. We have the classic Kung Fu Wonder Child and a new film called Killer Queen, a picture that was shot by an Iranian filmmaker in Toronto on, get this, Super 8. A feature-length film! Can't wait. And I mean, I've seen Kung Fu Wonder Child, and I could vouch for that one. It's very funny and very strange. And on the uh, Peplum disc, uh, the bonus feature is the amazing Richard Harrison starring film, where he plays the, like, muscular hero who has to fight a bunch of monsters. So, yeah, you definitely don't want to miss that. So, what are we doing next week on the podcast, Justin? Next week, we're talking about the famous avant-garde Czech film director, Vera Chitlova. Are you familiar with her work? And by that, I mean probably her most popular film, Daisies. I am familiar with that one, but not beyond it. Very excited to dive in. Find out uh, 
what comes before and after daisies, frankly, which is the only one that seems to be really canonized. Although, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there are other canonized ones. I shouldn't shoot my mouth off about things I don't know like this or how hard. Yeah, we should wait until we do our episode next week and we're like, I just couldn't get a handle on this filmmaker. Not enough time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And until then, my name's Justin DeGlue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. We interrupt this program to thank some of our new patrons, who include Cameron Gunn, Manual Labs, Mark R. Deming, Y2K Podcast, Kansen Akasoy, Tonghi Lo, Mura, Jack Tsianabos, Derek Schultz, Alex Gillerin, and Paul Matwichuk. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not do this without you. And I'd also like to remind people that next week, me and Will will be doing our American Pie five movie marathon oh my god and that podcast episode exclusive to the subscribers of this month's will be posted only to disappear in a few days so if you're not a patreon subscriber become one now or if you are make sure to grab it when it goes up there will be a reminder next episode as well and with that we now return you to a regular scheduled programming. You know, when we talk about So Bad It's Good, Will, I think that a piece of history that has been lost for people our age is how big a deal badmovies.org was. Remember that website? Oh, God. It was like a daily visit for me for a couple years there in the early 2000s. And their opinions were so bad. <laughs> it's one of those websites that, like, you go visit, and I don't remember, what was the rating system? It wasn't like Lava Lamps. That was Cold Fusion Video. I believe it was like little drops of slime or something yeah slime that's right and if it was like five drops of slime that means it was like plan nine from outer space you're like i gotta see shaolin drunkard (laughs) like that got five uh drops of slime but then if it got a little skull that was like the equivalent to leonard malton's bomb rating that was too bad to even enjoy ironically and it's weird that like if you search like any cult movie badmovies.org would come up whoa i just visited it's still live okay i i'm gonna go on it now too because i'm wondering if the message board is still active do you think there's some old will sloan messages there they would be under a pseudonym so you'd never find them it looks like they haven't really like written any new reviews lately so it still has like it's still the same layout still those drops of slime that's wild it's like going home again. I'm, I'm on here though and the message board is still active there's a thread going now about flesh pot on 42nd street people are still posting in here like guys move on <laughs> But maybe they're just happy there. Okay, so badmovies.org, such an exciting website because it would give you a very long and very not very funny plot synopsis. God, I think we've talked about this before. That like in the 2000s, when the internet started, basically every cult movie website is like, you know what I can finally do? Write a 10,000 word plot synopsis. Oh, like that website, um, The Agony Booth. Do you remember that? Yeah. And it's like, what are you doing? I don't, I'll watch the movie. It's going to take me longer to read this than to watch it. One of the people who wrote for the agony booth their rationale was think of this not so much as a review but sort of like a mystery science theater commentary of the movie no thank you and yeah it would take longer to read than to watch badmovies.org had other uh, good elements to it like it had images from the movie that you could download i think what was most important was the real player quality clips of the movie there was also a section called stuff to watch for where it would be like the writer's mst3k style quips that i guess you were supposed to (sighs) sync up to various parts of the movie so i'm here on a review for the 1980 flash gordon movie and under stuff to watch for it says eight minutes the pilot's last name is aldrin by the way 
So that's a little quip that you can sync up to eight minutes into that film. Or Guys, this is all we had at the time. <laughs> here's another one. Guys, watch Flash Gordon. And at 40 minutes, here's a joke. Your God is a prescription medication. So that's something that you can have a lot of fun. This with. is one of those websites, too, that like. When I see, because they numerically, like, give things a rating, you scroll through and you're like, why are you watching bad movies? You clearly don't enjoy this. This site and Stomp Tokyo was another site like that where they would write about weird, offbeat, cult-type movies, but they would just apply normal standards of judgment to them. They would review these movies as if they were Leonard Malton. So, like, let's say they were writing about Ratfinkaboo-Boo, for example. They would probably give it a little skull grade. Yeah, they're like, the story changes right in the middle. That's crazy! Yeah, thumbs down, bad movie. And it's like, come on, guys. Like, <laughs> I mean, this this was the level of cult movie discourse that we had back then in the early 2000s and me and will could not get enough of it like like we're not joking when we say we visited it daily you know we liked or okay maybe not you but i liked that level of discourse too because when you're 13 years old and you have no accomplishments of your own it's fun to laugh at things it's fun to look at a movie like for example rat finka boo boo and say whoa the plot changes halfway through this guy didn't know how to make a movie. Yeah, if I made a movie, I'd know how to make it. And it's like, well, you're, well, you haven't made a movie. And also, you don't need to apply a critical framework that is based on, like, the best movie to all of these films. They all have different ways you can enjoy them. But I'm glad that the bad movies era, I was going to say it's a relic in the rearview mirror, but I'm shocked that it still exists. Oh, yeah, you can still go and watch, like, the Nostalgia Critic make a video about, I don't know, some piece jingle all the way or something. And, and he'll be like, oh, what's the deal with this? Just listen to the Important Cinema Club and any other uh, podcast me and Will are related to, but nothing else. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And that also applies to uh, other critics too. Do not read Hoberman or Rosenbaum or... Nope. You know, nope. None of that. Just us. And then, you know, five years from now, you can be like, do you remember the important cinema club and their bad opinions? 